0: Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode, we sit down with Richard Bronson. Richard was living the life on Wall Street, a partner of the infamous Stratton Oakmont firm depicted in The Wolf of Wall Street, until he was arrested for securities fraud and lost everything. After spending 22 months in prison, he was determined to dedicate his life to helping formerly incarcerated people overcome the largest obstacle he himself experienced, employment. He has since founded 70 Million Jobs and Commissary Club to support returning citizens to gain community and employment. His leadership in this space is truly inspiring. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. As part of Castle's commitment to investing in local businesses that face systemic challenges accessing capital, they recently awarded a series of four financial grants with matching pro bono commitments to Black-owned small businesses in the Calgary region. You can learn more about these grants and Castles by visiting castles.com or on Twitter at CASEL's, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Thank you so much for joining us. It's It really is just a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I like to just always start by hearing about your life prior to the time of your arrest. So if we can go all the way back, would you mind telling us a little bit about your childhood and growing up?
1: Sure. I grew up in New York on Long Island and I had a fairly unexceptional childhood. I had two loving parents. My dad was a tough guy, but he was also a very loving guy, so he provided me with a challenging but also very um, nurturing sort of image of what a man could be. My My mother was really smart and a voracious reader, and she imparted within me a love of literature and words and crossword puzzles. I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and I went to college for journalism. And when I got out of school, I came back to New York and uh, worked in the journalism field initially, but, you know, I had all these friends who were leading lives that struck me as uh, more exciting than mine. They were driving fancy cars, and they had pretty girlfriends seated next to them, and they were going out. During the summers, to their houses in the Hamptons, and certainly was not within my reach practicing journalism. So I said, You know, something, um, I think I want that more than I want to write the great American novel. So uh, these friends of mine who were doing very well were all working on Wall Street. And, you know, uh, I had no experience in the market or finance at all. But I had friends who were able to get me a job working. And initially I worked at, you know, I worked at some big Wall Street firms, big investment banks like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and Shearson. Um, None of those companies are still around, by the way. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up by chance learning about and began working at a place that was on Long Island. And it was called Stratton Oakmont. And if that name sounds sort of remotely familiar to you, I'll fill in a blank. That was the name of the firm that was depicted in Martin Scorsese's movie, Wolf of Wall Street, which was very, very popular. And that was where I began working. And in short order, I became a partner there. So I was very much you know, immersed in the insanity that that was. And I started earning a lot of money and having a lot of fun. And we all knew we were doing things we shouldn't be doing. There was no mystery, certainly not to me. I knew it, you know, but, you know, uh, everybody on wall street was doing it. And, you know, so that somehow, you know, gave me, you know, some excuse, um, which is a, is a bad excuse as excuses go, but it was the best we could do. I worked there for a while and I made a lot of money. And then I left there to move to Florida where I began my own firm, which was largely patterned on Stratton Oakmont. And in fact, we were all in cahoots with each other doing our nefarious
0: worst to separate investors from their money. And let me just first say
1: that I 100% bear the shame and the guilt and the knowledge that what I was doing was wrong. I knew it all along. And I was motivated solely by greed and my stupidity. I don't make any excuses for myself. I did things that were very, very, very wrong. And this is stuff that I did in the early to mid 90s. So what are we talking about? 25 years ago, at least. But yet I still wake up every morning to this day. And, and by the way, I paid everybody back. We set up a fund to pay everyone back. Wow. And uh, so we set up, you know, we're talking about a lot of money, you know, like $50 million, something like that, that we took out of our pockets uh, and returned to the investors. But these investors were not, just just so people understand they were not widows and orphans by any means. They were wise guy stock guys, hedge funds, guys who thought that they were smarter than us and that they could get over on us. And you know, at casinos, they laugh at guys like that who think they can get over on the casino, because the casino always wins. We always won, ultimately. And, you know, we told ourselves, well, these guys had it coming and they were bad guys and they were crooks, too. And they were trying to cheat us. So, you know, it's a zero sum game and we're going to win this game. Uh, And that's true. But that doesn't make it right. You know?
0: Well, I just you were talking about living still with this shame and guilt every day. And what is that? What what's the impact on you still?
1: Well, physically, I wake up every morning with this sort of emptiness in the pit of my stomach. You know, whereby I think in terms of what my life could have been, had I been less greedy, had I had more patience, had I worked a little harder rather than trying to find shortcuts. Mm -hmm. You know, um, those were all the things I did. Yeah. And I paid for it dearly. You know, I made a great deal of money. I was making $10, $20 million a year, and I was leading the most glamorous life. A balding, you know, chubby Jewish guy from Long Island could be leading. Uh, I owned a nightclub on South Beach, which was one of the hottest nightclubs on South Beach, which was pretty fun and glamorous in ways you could imagine. And I published a magazine, and I had a sick house on the beach. I lived next door to Eric Clapton and I drove fancy, you know, hot Ferraris and I dated supermodels and I knew everybody and everybody knew me. But my greed, my avarice, as it inevitably will, my karma, if you will, uh, caught up to me and I paid dearly. I lost everything.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I lost, you know, I had a, I was, I was a significant art collector. I lost all my art. I lost my home. I lost all the money in the bank. I lost friends and I lost family. And ultimately, I lost my freedom, Mm -hmm. which, you know, hurt the most. And I was sent away to prison for a few years. I can't begin to tell you how often I would just sit there shaking my head as I reflected on the turns my life took from flying on private jets to the point where I'm in prison scrubbing a hundred toilets a day. You know, that was my job for a while and eating miserable food and getting miserable health care, sleeping, you know, in a bunk with a whole bunch of other guys and on and on and on. I'll tell you how much, if you want to hear more of my stories of woe, and I'm, and I'm really not doing this to elicit any compassion, from anybody, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve your compassion. Trust me, I I did. I was a bad guy, you know. I treated people poorly and disrespectfully, and I dearly regret it. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed by it. I uh, I used to drive around very expensive automobiles, of course, and as things are getting worse and worse and worse. And the police, the, the, the FBI is closing in, so to speak. I ended up having to rent the car from Hertz and I put it on my credit card. And eventually my credit card got maxed out, whereby the rental company is calling me every 10 minutes, you know, you got to bring the car in. And of course I ignored them and hid the car so they couldn't find it. And eventually, you know, naturally they... Uh, reported the car stolen. And I was in Miami with the car parked on the street and I was in a building and I came out. And as I'm going to open the door, I was arrested by the Miami city police for, you know, for stealing a car, which essentially I had. And I went away and, I, you know, I have a, a sister who is a saint who has been in my corner and unfailingly has been there. She's not a wealthy person by any means, but, you know, she was always there. She put up her home, um, you know, when I was out on bail and had always had a couch for me to sleep on. So I put her through hell that she didn't deserve. But in any event, she got me out of prison. And the deal was, You know, uh, don't get in trouble and, you know, report back in a few years and we'll expunge this arrest. But, you know, they didn't know that I was being arrested almost simultaneously by the feds. So I'm in prison and I get out of prison and I'm in my sister's apartment in Manhattan, you know, watching the New York Knicks and thinking, okay, time for my life to get going again is a knock on the door. And it turns out there is a couple of New York City detectives there to serve a bench warrant on me that was issued from Florida years ago because I was supposed to show up regarding this court case, regarding this car. I was in prison. Of course, I couldn't show up and no one told me about it. I had no idea this thing was happening, but nonetheless, I was guilty. And then I got handcuffed, and, and, and they walked in. They go, we have a bench warrant for your arrest." And I go, I've been out of prison for less than 24 hours. How could you be here? So they took me to be booked and then they threw me in Rikers, Rikers Island. And that's about as worse a place as you ever want to be. That was really, really, really bad. That was a dangerous, scary, evil, terrible, terrible place. You know, that at any second, violence, you know, for no reason, it would go just there was no middle ground there. There was no moderation. It was it would be quiet. And then all of a sudden, the place would go nuts and guys were pulling knives out of parts of their body you know, where they had them hidden and were knifing each other and all around me. And it was very, very hard to stay out of trouble. So that was really, that was really the low point of my life. And once again, I had to ask my sister to help me get, get me out of this, you know, which even just saying it, I shudder in shame that a grown man had to do that, but I had to do it. So, you know, I, I came out of prison though, and I, I learned a lot. I was a changed person. Thank God. And I think I became a much humbler person. And, you know, I dedicate my life now to doing the right thing because I need to make amends for all the wrong things I did. So that's what gets me up in the morning.
0: I'm really excited shortly to get there because I can't wait to dive into what it is you're doing now. But but quickly before we get there. So before and I want to make sure that anyone who isn't familiar with the justice system is following that what happened is that there was a warrant for you to appear in, because you had failed to appear in court about the car while you were in prison. Correct. And so as soon as you're released from prison, you now get arrested and thrown into Rikers Island because you failed to appear in court while you were in prison.
1: Yes. In the United States, Criminal justice is very different than in Canada, for example, which is to say, much, much worse. And the entire system of sharing data, even in this day and age, it is like from the 1840s. Nobody talks to anybody, there's no communication at all. So, because of that, people, and particularly when you consider that most people in the criminal justice system in this country, don't have the resources to have a lawyer, much less a good lawyer, looking at for their interest. So they end up being assigned a public defender who is typically someone with like 900 cases going at any time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, their goal is just to clear their, their calendar as much as they, they have to, or else they're going to drown. So, you know, the, the goal is always to just plead cases, settle them and move the paper and move on, except if, for example, you're not guilty. Now, I was guilty, but so many people who were in Rikers who didn't have access to even competent legal defense, and they're being told that if you want to fight this, which is your constitutional right, we're going to throw the book at you if you, if you lose. And guess what? You're going to lose. And you may get 30 years. But if you want to get this thing taken care of, sign here, plead guilty, and it'll be two years. So what do you do? You know, you, I mean, you're some young guy, mostly 80% are men. You, you, you know, and you're not particularly educated. You don't have the tools to really deal with this. You're freaked out and worried anyway. You don't have any money. So, of course, you're going to sign the thing. And then you're thrown in there where it's so easy to get into trouble again. You know, you you look at someone the wrong way, you're involved with a fight. And they don't try to figure out who's responsible for the fight. You were in a fight. You're guilty. So all of a sudden, your two years is now five years. And now they throw you into solitary for six months. And being in solitary is going to drive you crazy. And when you get out, you're angry, you're bitter, you're institutionalized, nothing good is going to happen. And some of these people end up out of innocence. But even if it was a minor, relatively minor crime, this thing just it just morphs into a bigger and bigger thing with a life of its own organically. And all of a sudden it's a 20 year thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for someone who made a stupid mistake when they were 18 years old. And it just blows my mind, and we—it happens all the time. That's not an anomaly; it happens all the time. And if you're in one of these prisons or jails, you see it firsthand. It's not theoretical, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. So all of these things happen, and the impact is exactly as you said. People are bitter. They're angry. There is a huge mental health impact, right. and what if anything, in your experience, was done to support as you were getting ready to transition out of prison?
1: Listen, I do not for one minute look upon myself the same way I was was, and I am a white college educated male in white corporate America, a good college, a lot of work experience, a lot of life experience. I am not the typical person. Who goes to prison. I mean, I knew a a lot of other people like me and where I was sent, there were other people like me. But that's not, you know, I was not a 24 year old man of color who got the shit beaten out of him, you know, just because he was a stupid kid and, you know, developed a drug habit and mental health issues and on and on without any education, without anything and is thrown to the wolves You know, so what's available? Listen, the federal system is better typically than states and certainly than jails. Jails are often the worst places because they're so transitory. People are coming in and out. And because there's not a real feeling like this is where I'm living for the next 10 years. So we all need to get along. We need to have rules in place. That's what prison is more like.
0: And are they, so I'm assuming sort of different experiences at, diff, at each of the places, but are they doing anything to support people in transitioning back into housing, into employment, into anything?
1: I mean, it's, you're asking a very broad question. Number one, ultimately, a person is released and their successful reentry is contingent on them. And they may have gotten some training and they may have gotten some good training, although most won't have. Not that they didn't want it, but it just wasn't available. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, uh, and this gets into the work that we're doing, um, ultimately they have to address, you know, what society thinks of them Mm -hmm. and, and the stigma that they carry with them, you know, the life sentence that they carry with them having done their time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how well you're trained if someone just says, we're not going to hire you. You know, I wear my, my this background for me, like people ask me, have you had your thing expunged? Would you? I don't want to. I, I It's not like I'm proud of what I did, certainly, but I'm proud of who I've become. And I'm proud of how I handled the time that I did it honorably. I'm proud of the man who did things wrong, but then tried to make it right. So I don't want to pretend I'm not that person. It's it's upsetting for me just to talk about this, as you can sort of sense.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, um, you know, what do you do? Um, there? So it doesn't matter how much training I got, you know, or didn't get. Um, and people like me will always figure it out. I'll always figure it out. you know. But there are 70 million Americans, one in three adults, believe it or not, that have a record in the United States, one in three adults. And every one of them goes through hell in finding a job. And unemployment correlates directly with recidivism. Here's something that will blow. Um, I don't think it'll blow your mind because you're probably familiar. But the r- rate of recidivism, which is to say, That after someone's been released, that the likelihood of them breaking the law again, or not even necessarily breaking the law, but going back to prison, 75% of the people will. And they don't recidivate just once. It's like five times. Mm -hmm. They get arrested, they get sent away, they come out, they get it, and it just keeps going on and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with the fact how many interviews at McDonald's do you want to go on? You know, you're a grown man or woman. You have a family, maybe. You did your time. You did something stupid in the past, for sure. You take ownership. And now you're going to some shitty interview at McDonald's, for God's sakes, which pays minimum wage. They don't even give 40 hours because they don't want to pay benefits. So it's something like 30, you're going to make $140, you know, in Texas, the minimum wage is, I think $7.35. You work 20 hours, you made, what, $130 pre-tax. And yet, and some 17-year-old assistant manager is interviewing you and saying, no, we can't hire you. How many of those do you go on before you say, fuck this, man? Mm-hmm. This just isn't worth it, particularly if I hope it was OK. I spoke the way I just did. Uh, that's the way in prison people speak.
0: Um, we're just trying to be authentic here.
1: We're very if, we're nothing, if not authentic. But, you know, um, you know, uh, they have friends who are actually on the street breaking the law, making a lot of money, having fun, getting high, hanging out with girls, whatever. That sounds like a pretty good alternative. All right. There's risk. All right, but what? I want to work at McDonald's if I'm lucky? You know, so that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that the guy was trained. There are certain parts of the country. There are certain things, you know, if you learn HVAC or, you know, skilled trades. and But you, you have to have your shit together. Mm-hmm. You have to be a, and here's what happens. You come out of jail or prison. Yeah, typically you don't have any money. Typically, you don't have no car, you have no clothes, you have no job, maybe your family's deserted you, your friends who you thought you were your friends, they're not around. And they won't even let, they they let you out on what's called supervised release, which is like parole or probation. One of the terms of supervised release is you may not talk to anyone else who has a record. So you just got out and you don't know what to do how do I get a job? What's a job board? How do I do a resume? I don't even, I've never even held a phone in my hand because I've been in prison for 30 years. And they're telling me if I don't get a job and a place to live, like within two days, I'm going back to prison. And I can't talk to the people who can actually, you know, help me.
0: The people who've been through it themselves. Who have been through it,
1: mm-hmm. who can give me the benefit of their experience. Yeah. So that's kind of ridiculous. So when you ask, is there training, there's some training, but the systemic, you know, negative bias that exists towards this population is so pernicious and prevalent. And I, you know, I believe a lot of it has to do with racism. You know, how do you, how do you conquer that? How does a, how does an individual conquer that, Mm -hmm. you know, without it having consuming your life, you know? It's, it's really not easy. I can, I could promise it wasn't easy for me and it was much easier for me than most people, Mm -hmm. you know, given my background.
0: Yeah. Well, and so now you are doing some pretty incredible things to address these issues. So why don't you tell us about them?
1: Yeah. So when I got out of prison, I had no idea what to do with myself. I didn't even know who I was. Was I a successful guy who made a mistake? Was I a guy who was successful because he broke the law? What should I be doing? Should I try to do something big, like, you know, which I always thought I should? You know, is that why I was put on this earth? Or is that like my ego talking and it's going to lead to trouble? And be humble and get some, you know, work at McDonald's, whatever. It's better, you know. Um, so I, I, it took me several years to sort of just figure things out. And I was very lucky. I came upon a nonprofit organization in the reentry space called The Five Ventures, and they're, they're, they have offices around the country. I was in New York, and the woman who founded the organization was really great, and I learned a lot from her. and She really helped me, and taught me a lot. Uh, and eventually, I became director in New York, so I had a position of responsibility. But frankly, over time, I, if if someone asked me to be honest. I would have to honestly say that we were having not a hell of a lot of impact. And I all I had to do was look at the rate of recidivism and how many jobs were we helping people get? Because to me, that's a key metric. Mm-hmm. And if you get people jobs, things almost inevitably turn out well. And if you don't, they almost always turn out poorly. And we weren't getting many people jobs. And not just us, but all of the nonprofits out there and all these community organizations and governmental agencies that in the U.S., we spend hundreds of billions of dollars annually throwing at the problem and getting arguably nothing in the bargain. It couldn't be worse. So I said, you know something, I'm going to, th- again, my ego reared its ugly head and said, listen, I couldn't do any worse and maybe I could do better. And this is a space reentry that needs to be shaken up badly. So I said, number one, let's approach it as a for-profit business. I felt like, let's do it. Let's do it as a for-profit. Let's employ technology, which nobody was doing anything with. And let's see if we can't do this a little better. I was very, very lucky because there's a organization in, in uh, Silicon Valley. It's called Y Combinator. And Y Combinator is the premier globally most successful and well, well thought of incubator for uh, tech companies, companies like Airbnb and Dropbox and Reddit and Coinbase and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, the, of the, all these unicorns went through there. And somehow or another, I talked my way into it. So I went through there and I was able to raise money from venture capital firms and investors, which was great. They thought I was nuts. They, I mean, everybody liked the mission. You know, everybody, white, middle-aged, wealthy white men love the mission across the board. They didn't think I had a shot in hell of being successful and certainly not making any money at it, you know, but they go, you know, some of them said, all right, we'll give you a little money, you know, don't, don't come back though, because we've, we've done our part. And it took us a while but we started really kicking ass and we were successful in helping thousands of people get jobs and nobody has ever done anything even close to that you know at least in this country that i know of for-profit non-profit or whatever so i'm very very proud of it i have a great really amazing team who are as passionate as i am and several of them also have records so And we started making money, which was really pretty amazing. But then the coronavirus hit and companies laid off wholesale all of our people and they stopped hiring. And we were like a restaurant put out of business, you know, during the coronavirus. That's what happened to us. Before we started the company, we did a lot of interviewing and polls and A-B testing on Facebook. And to find out what does this population, what do people with records want most? And the two things they said almost to a person was, A, they need jobs, that much we knew, and B, they were hungry for community. And when the coronavirus hit and we were put out of business, essentially, it was clear it was time to work on community. So we had this vision of creating sort of like Facebook for people with records, where they could come together, finally. And learn from one another and serve as role models and inspire one another where they'd be resources and ultimately, you know, uh, exercise their collective power to wield it. I mean, this is a population that could elect any president if they all got together and, and were galvanized. And I said, you know something, we could do this. Let's get them together, you know. I mean, the women's movement, you know, there came a day where women said, you know, they stepped forward and they said, enough of this second class bullshit. We're not that. And if you can't take it, that's going to be your problem. And the civil rights movement, you know, there's always that sort of tipping point when, you know, these folks come together. And I was watching what was happening with Black Lives Matter. And I was so impressed with, you know, how it was the world was paying attention to these issues I said, the world should pay attention to this population as well, and let's do it. So we just launched Commissary Club is the name, uh, and we it's a mobile app available on iOS or Android, and we're our official launch is coming in a couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, and we're partnering with Meek Mill, who is a prominent uh, hip-hop star and also involved with criminal justice and his record label, Rock Nation, we're partnering with. We just did a deal whereby our platform will be in prisons now for the first time. Hundreds of thousands of people who are currently incarcerated will have access to the content, to the job board, and we'll have access to them to sort of early, you know, someone on my team said, reentry begins the day you step into prison. And we're going to be able to reach them there. And I think that not only will we continue and scale the impact we're having, but I think um, we're going to make a great deal of money. We want to build a big, successful company, and we want to do massive social good. I, I have discovered my calling in life. These are my brothers and sisters. I want to, you know, I cry over, you know, the pain that their families go through. And the little kids who are, you know, just left without parents or left fathers or mothers. And I see particularly what women go through and how they get more than anybody get fucked over by the criminal justice system and their faith in a bad man who treated them poorly. And I just feel like, you know, not on my watch. I just can't let that happen if I can help it. So that's what we're doing.
0: Well, it's, it's incredible. And what you're saying there at the end is so true that the ripple effect of either not giving people the opportunity to succeed or giving them the opportunity to succeed is enormous. All of the family members, the children, the community members, I mean, it's huge.
1: It is, it is. And, you know, to me, employment is the silver bullet, mm-hmm. you know, so To me, the answers are obvious. I fight with some of the largest employers in the country and I call them out on it, you know, and many of them talk a good game, but when it comes down to it, they're not really prepared. And the the irony of it is, is that these folks actually are great on the job because they have so few options. If they get a reasonably acceptable job. They won't do anything to screw up the good thing because unlike other people without a record, they can't assume that there's something else waiting for them. So and they and they recognize probably that somebody went out on a limb on their behalf and they tend to reward that person in that company with their loyalty, which is a very old fashioned concept these days. You know, my people, the retention is better. They do great work. And, you know, it's felt throughout the entire workforce and companies more and more are starting to, you know, recognize it, you know, forget about that. It's the right thing to do. You know, it's just good business. Mm -hmm. And that's our message.
0: Absolutely. So thank you for the work you're doing. It is, I know, having such a huge impact. Thank you. And my last question, the question that I ask everyone is this the stigma of you know the criminal record, the fact of having been incarcerated, I think about as a name tag like the hello my name is, but that you just wear all the time yes and if you can go back to you walking out of prison and you could tear off that name tag and instead write on it what you wanted people to see in you, what would it say i I, I
1: don't know that I again, I don't know that I would tear off the name tag mm-hmm. I feel part of my role is to explode some of these myths, mm-hmm. and I'm doing the only thing I could do. I wouldn't change it. Mm-hmm. I wear it as a badge in a weird way, you know. I mean, no, I, I, I certainly going to prison was not something I would, I would ever ask for or that I, anyone should aspire to. You have no idea. When people hear that I was a partner at the Stratton Oakmont, 25-year-old males, every one of them say, man, I wish I was there. I would do that in a minute. And when I went to prison, I was sort of a well-known guy. I walked in there. I was sort of a celebrity. Like, there were newspaper articles that had been circulated, apparently, and it talked about how I used to make $10 million a year, and I got a two-year sentence. So people started calling me 10 for two. And they were telling me I would do what you, I would do it in a second if I could make ten million dollars and go away for two years, I would do that without thinking. So there's you know that sentiment exists, but I, I, for me, I, I feel like you know I'm going to be in your face with this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to dare you to judge me because I will tell you this: you're much younger than I am, Zo everybody screws up. Everybody has had to ask for a second chance. Unless you're a saint, you've cheated on your taxes, you drove with a glass of wine or a beer too many, you've fucked over somebody somewhere calling it business, and you're no better and no worse than I am. Morality is rarely that black and white. It's not a binary equation. You know, it's, it's a matter of gradation. I'm not talking about axe murderers here. There aren't that many axe murderers and serial killers. There aren't that many psychotics in prison. You know, the reality of them are is they're mostly your uncles and your brothers and maybe some of your aunts or sisters. The war on drugs ended up putting a lot of normal people from nice families into prison for a long, long time. And it used to be it was them versus us, them being the animals, the monsters, us being nice people. But what happened when them became us? Us was us. And people had to stop, you know, had to start really, you know, thinking about that a little bit. They have. And attitudes have improved dramatically from the 15 years or 16 years that I've been out. It's got a ways to go. Mm -hmm. But I, I just sort of this is who I am and like it. Don't like it. I I can I understand if you feel that way. I get it. I don't blame you. You know, but this is who I am. I'm doing the best I can do today.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I I really love that, and I think always so important to bring people back to actually think about what you've done in your life. That you what, the way that I sort of think about it is: what do you not want to lead with? Right? Not you personally, me, anybody who's listening to this and why judge other people by that decision by that thing
1: yeah so i am who i am and uh certainly imperfect but working on it every day i wake up trying to be a better man than i was yesterday and i i I, I have so far to go i'm sure i'm not going to make it in this lifetime so uh we'll see what happens tomorrow
0: Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, Check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the field podcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.